Good morning, and a happy new year to all of you. This is lesson three in our series on the letter to the seven churches. I use the word letter singularly because the whole book is a letter to the seven churches, and then there are those, of course, specific instructions and words in chapters two and three. This is part two, and there is one more part um, before we are done. Lord willing, that will be next week. I was I, I was looking at uh, at Google Earth and and trying to get a mental picture in my mind of uh, what the Isle of Patmos looks like, and you'll see that on the screen in a minute, I think. But but before we go there. I was trying to get myself into the mindset of John as he has this encounter with our Lord and as he is instructed to write these words. Think about it. He is the last man standing in one sense, right? You remember John chapter 21 where the Lord tells Peter that they're going to bind his hands and lead him where he doesn't want to go and Peter's grousing because he's he wonders why John gets to live longer than he does and the rumor was John wasn't going to die at all, which was not true. But all of the other apostles, so far as we know, are gone. They're dead. John alone is left and he is uh, older. In fact, one might say his, he had one foot on a banana peel and the other in the grave. So his time of departure is near, and if his death is not due to old age, it is due to the fact that he is exiled on a, an island as a prisoner, and he is virtually on death row, and his death could be imminent. So uh, John is a man whose life is drawing to a close. The church in Ephesus, in fact, the churches uh, that are addressed in Revelation are moving from first-generation churches to second-generation churches. And that is not necessarily good. In fact, it's often a difficult thing for that second generation when God has moved and worked in a powerful way. Uh, those things are distant memories. For example, in Ephesus, you remember the riot that's described in, in, in Acts chapter 19? And there you see uh, that we've been told in verse 10 that the gospel spread throughout all Asia. And then when the idol makers are distressed because their idol making trade has gone down, one of the uh, opponents who's pressing a case against Paul and the apostles uh, virtually admits these men have impacted almost all of Asia with the coming of the gospel. And then you remember the story of the seven sons of Sceva and how they were trying to cast out demons through the, the Jesus who Paul preached and they ended up in bad shape. And as a result, the Christians that were in Ephesus had this profound sense of the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus and his power. And so they took these magical books. <laughs> they would be the equivalent of the how-to books in the bookstores today. They took those books and they just pile them up and burned them. And they realized those books were not the key 
to living a powerful Christian life. But that's been nearly 40 years. And so things have changed. Those are distant memories for old people. And that younger generation that's coming up, they may not have memories like that at all. And John must wonder, therefore, what it's all about. I couldn't help but think also of the vision and its impact on John when I was looking back in Revelation chapter 1. Do you remember as John sees this picture of the exalted Lord, he falls at his feet like a dead man, and the text says that the Lord reached out his hand and touched him and said, do not be afraid. Now, 40 years earlier or so, John had been one of the three on the Mount of Transfiguration. And in Matthew chapter 17, the description of that is that when the glorified Lord, the glory of our Lord was revealed, that the disciples, which would include John, were terrified. Jesus reached out his hand and said, do not be afraid. You think that was a little deja vu for him? Forty years later, he gets a kind of an instant refresh on what it was like to be in the presence of the glorified God. Well, I also should point out to you, I think, that if it was roughly 40 years since the church in Ephesus had been born, that's drawing kind of close to the age of CBC. And it isn't always good, that is what happens with age, either in our bodies or in our churches. Churches tend to have a lifespan, and then things grow old and cold. And so I wonder if the problems that face the church at Ephesus may not be problems that face us as well, and therefore we ought to listen well to what is said. Well, let's review a couple things before we move on from last week. We know that Ephesus was a key city, probably 250,000 people, a key city in the, in the Roman Empire. And it was certainly a key church in Asia, as we are told. It is Paul's ministry there, probably the longest ministry Paul ever had anywhere. It was his ministry there that spread throughout all of Asia and perhaps a number of these churches that are addressed were birthed through that ministry of Paul, not to mention or not to avoid Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila, and others. It, it, it's, it's clear that this is a church that has many positive things to be said about it. In fact, we may wonder why the Lord is upset about this one area when they seem to be so strong in others. They are, they are intent on doctrinal purity. They are persistent and persevering in their faith and their walk and their deeds. And, uh, and yet their first love, he says, has been left behind. So I tried to say last week that we need to be careful as we're defining what first love is, that we don't just isolate that to our love for God, although that is certainly primary. Don't mis, uh, misunderstand me. When our Lord summarizes the law, it's you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second one is your neighbor as yourself. 
But those two are so intimately tied together, it seems to me that when he talks about the first love, he's talking about every aspect of the love which believers had toward the Lord Jesus and toward others because of their experience of salvation through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we ought not to try to separate those. I also was trying to point out that there is a relationship, I believe, between a devotional, a, 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 a devotion to doctrinal purity and the lack of love. And so there may have been a little bit of the pit bull that had come into the demeanor of the church and that is not always uh, warm and fuzzy and, and, uh, and uh, love oozing. And, and so there may be a relationship in this watchdog mentality that had done some damage to love, but it's very important to realize that he is not telling them to tone down their devotion to doctrinal purity in order to be more loving. He is saying that they need to add love to their doctrinal devotion as opposed to subtracting doctrinal devotion from love. And and so that, I think, is, is a very, very important element. Truth and love must come together. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we are to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good if our love is to be unhypocritical. True love distinguishes good from evil and, and that is certainly important for the church there. Now, I think on the screen you'll be seeing in a minute, it should be the third slide, the Isle of uh, Patmos that was there. And I just want you to see that the Isle of Patmos was not that far from Turkey, or, or what we would call Asia Minor. Miletus would probably be the closest. And remember, that is the city to which Paul returned on his third missionary journey. And he returned there, I think, rather than Ephesus because of what we see in Acts 19. There was a heap big riot in Acts 19, and I don't think Paul was particularly eager to refresh their memory about all of that and bring distress upon the church. So he comes down to Miletus. And I couldn't help but ask myself, I wonder if Paul, as they were sailing down to Miletus, could see the Isle of Patmos somewhere off in the distance. I don't know, but it's not that far away, as as you can see, and so it's not surprising that the letter would be written from Patmos and then distributed to those churches which would be uh, nearby. Now, you might just take a, a quick look at the uh, at the next slide, thanks to Google Earth. That's just a zoom in on what the Isle of Patmos looks like today if you were to come down and, and zoom. And if you see those uh, Greek uh, words up there in the center of that, that's the highest spot, and I think there is a... Um, a, a kind of a monument to John and, and a monastery up there that uh, all the tourists would probably go to. Maybe some of you have been to, uh, but that's there on the on the Isle of uh, Patmos. Okay, so he's on the Isle of Patmos. Let's make a few observations as we go to our, our next uh, slide. It seems clear to me that the message that is given to each church is a message that is applicable to all the churches. Now, I would say not only all the churches who were the immediate recipients of this letter, 
but obviously all the churches subsequently, which would include us. So you see, for instance, in each uh, letter to the particular church that is addressed to a particular church, it ends with, let him hear, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as. Not let him hear what the Spirit says to his church alone, but let him hear what the Spirit says to all of the churches. Because the reality is, all of these problems, I think, exist in some form, greater or lesser, in any church. And so all churches are to learn as they watch. Remember that proverb, it's probably not very kindly, but when it says that you strike a scoffer and the simple will learn, there's a sense in which when God disciplines one church, if we've got any brains, we'll be listening and saying, I don't think I want to go there. So all of us ought to be listening. And also in chapter 2 and verse 23, when our Lord speaking to the church at Thyatira, he says, and I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. So Revelation is written not just to these seven churches, and these letters are not written just to one church. The entire book is written to the church as a whole. Which leads me to my next observation, and I I think I may have alluded to it last week, but it did not strike me as strongly until I was studying this week, and that is this. Almost all of us, when we think in prophetic terms... We think in Israel terms. Is that not true? When you think of prophecy, you think of Israel. And I had to come to terms with the fact, not that Israel is missing, but that it's not nearly as prominent as I would have expected it to be. So I I do a little count, and I realize this is not the essence of what it is. But church or churches is used 20 times, the vast majority in chapters 2 and 3, but not exclusively. When you come to Jews, we find it twice. And by the way, it's not positive. Remember, it talks about the synagogue of Satan. And so much of what is said about the Jews and Judaism in chapters 2 and 3 is about those unbelieving Jews who have set their course at destroying the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the church. Israel's used three times, Jews used twice. That says to me that we need to be careful. If this is the final book of prophecy, we need to be careful to make those observations and somehow viewing the church as only parenthetically or incidentally uh, in, in terms of its involvement in prophecy is not really consistent with the emphasis that I see in Revelation. I'll be honest with you. I don't know where that takes me. I honestly do not know where that takes me. But I dare not skip or overlook or suppress the observation because somehow that rocks my boat in some way in terms of my preconceived ideas. So these words of prophecy, this whole book, is primarily addressed to the church through the churches. Um, And Israel is a part of that, but not always in the way we might uh, expect. Here's one that that occurred to me uh, as I was reading and studying this week as well. 
The description of our Lord in Revelation chapter 1 and following through in chapters 2 and 3, because you have the description of the vision of our, of our glorified Lord in chapter 1 and, and John falling before him as a dead man. And then you have pieces of that description. For instance, in the church at Ephesus, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and he is the one who is standing and walking amongst the midst of the lampstands or the churches, so that each description goes back to that initial vision in chapter 1. But here's something that occurred to me, and I guess it has to do in theological terms with the transcendence of God versus the imminence of God. The transcendence of God is the God, and, and the word holiness probably would, would fit well here, is the God who is so utterly other that he is so distant, so far and vastly above us that we think of him in distant terms. And in the Old Testament, you related to him in distant terms. That is, if you got too close, it was over for you. So there is this element of the transcendence of God. When I read the book of Hebrews and I see this picture of our Lord Jesus as the great high priest who is exalted and who is in the heavens... Uh, and let's just look at, at Hebrews 7, uh, 26 as an example, the first one I list in your text there. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So that when I come out of Hebrews, as we recently did in the study of that book, and you think about the Lord Jesus and his priestly ministry, where do you think of him being physically, spatially? I think of him way up there, sitting at the right hand of the Father and, 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 and interceding for us. And that's true. But the counterbalance is here. Because in Revelation chapter 1, you see our Lord in all of his holiness and his glory walking in the midst of the churches and holding the angels of the churches in his right hand. In other words, I don't see our Lord Jesus as distant and remote. I see him as close and intimately involved in the affairs of his church. And when love starts growing cold, it generally starts thinking in distant uh, uh, terms. I remember reading uh, in a book about death and dying, and it was talking about how people begin to retreat in the face of death. And so when you're sick, you know, your loved ones come up and they shake your hand and they kiss you. And when you get really close to death, they blow you a kiss from the doorway. They're already just making their distance between you. And when our love for our Lord grows cold, I think we like to think of him in distant terms more than we like to think of him in intimate, close-up, and personal terms. But I see the personal element there in, uh, in Revelation chapter 1 and, and following in chapters 2 and 3. Here's an observation that I am indebted to uh, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson for making as he taught on the uh, seven churches. By the way, in a future study guide, I'm going to give you uh, the sources for f- about four or five of the best preachers I know of who have done series on uh, the series on the seven churches of Asia, so you could uh, listen to those. But as I was listening to Dr. Johnson, he pointed out that in, in uh, Revelation 
chapter 2 and verse 2, you have these words, your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance. I did not notice it, but he did. Those are exactly the same terms that are found in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. Exactly the same Greek words. And he, in, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, it says, instead of deeds, your work of faith. Instead of toil, it's your labor of love. And instead of perseverance, it's your steadfastness of hope. Now, I'm not quite sure how much to make of that, but I'm tempted to say that when you look at Paul's words of encouragement and commendation to the church at Thessalonica, they're doing well, are they not? Faith, hope, and, 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 uh, and love. Uh, they're doing a faith, love, and hope. They're doing well in those areas. And, and their deeds and their perseverance are directly tied to faith, love, and hope. I don't know why, but they're not mentioned here. And I think part of the reason is that there was, that many of the deeds that the church at Ephesus was doing were the same kinds of things they had been doing before. But there is a way in which you can have labor, hard labor, strenuous labor, minus love. And, and I wonder if that's not part of what the insinuation is here. They have these things, the shell, the form is still there. Remember, Paul talks about a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. It looks to me like these are forms of service and faithfulness, but that the core value of love somehow is missing from them. At least that's one way of viewing the, the data. The last thing that I would point out is the use of the singular. I did that um, last week. Um, and, and I want to mention it again. It's interesting to me that in these addresses that are made to the church, where there is obviously a problem, especially in Ephesus, that encompasses the whole church, there's going to be in the other letters, there will be pockets of people who are problem people, but you don't necessarily see the entire group characterized as they are. In Ephesus, everybody's characterized as lacking somehow in love. And so why would he give us these singular instructions, singular imperatives? Uh, remember, repent, restore, or renew the works that you once you first did. Why would he do that in the singular? I'll, I'll come back to that, and Lord willing, at the conclusion of the message. So what I want to do now is to pick up on, on this the church, this whole question of, of why the lack of love is such a serious matter. And I have to ask myself, why is it that this is such a terse description and indictment in Revelation chapter 2? Why are there not more details uh, given to us about this? I'll come back to this point at the end too, but I call it fuzzy logic 
sometimes what you get is a sort of fuzziness about this where it's not as precise and we would like him to be speaking plainly and specifically about the problem and about its application but there there's not uh, that and and so why do, why do I have to go elsewhere Ephesus was a place that had probably more exposure to biblical revelation than almost any other city they got the book of Ephesians, books were written to there, written from there. Timothy, remember, was sent there. Paul was there for three years. This is a pretty saturated place in terms of biblical truth. And they were seeking to preserve that. So it seems to me that when our Lord addresses the church at Ephesus and says, you have a problem, he expects them to start thinking through that problem and say to themselves, now, how would I know that love was so important? Here I've got all these commendations for these things that we're strong at, and yet somehow he comes down heavy on us for this love issue. Why is it so important? I think that they were expected to know from other passages of Scripture why that was. So I'm going to just quickly run down and give you a little dose of what the Scriptures say about the importance of love and why it is so serious then in a matter in uh, Ephesus. It is God's nature and an evidence that we are his children. God is love. And the text goes on then to say, and the one who abides in love abides in God. This is really pretty important. Love is one of those earmarks of the Christian that manifests that we are abiding in him. So it manifests God and it manifests our relationship with him. Love marks out those who are true disciples of Jesus. John chapter 13, for example, verse 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. So the disciple of Jesus Christ was marked out by the fact that these believers in these various churches had a love for not only the Lord, but a love for one another. It reflects our Lord and the Father to others. Now, you remember back in John chapter 1, where it talks about there was this one who bore witness to the light, and then he says, and there was the true light. Then Jesus goes on in John chapter 8 and John chapter 9 to say that he is the light of the world. But our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, We are the light of the world. We are the ones now who are to manifest that light to others. And in fact, the church is called the lampstand, is it not? Church is called the lampstand. And if the church fails to deal with this lovelessness that's existing within it, this lack of love, then he says he will remove their lampstand. In other words, we will lose our light You might say God takes a dim view of lacking in love. And so here you have this thing about our Lord that is reflected in the church and in believers. Therefore, if we lack love, we misrepresent God. That's the long and the short of it. If we go about as kind of angry, cranky, sour folks then we are not conveying the kind of love that God has manifested toward men. 
it summarizes the whole law. Remember Matthew chapter 22, the man says, well, what, you know, what do I do? What's this law all about? And Jesus says, you shall love, you sum up the law this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up the law. And then uh, in the next statement, in Romans 13, he, he, Paul goes on to say it fulfills the law. He's saying, if we act in love toward others, that love will fulfill the requirements of the law. In fact, I would I would venture to say it will take you beyond the law. When you think of the story in Ruth about Boaz and the kind of charity that he practiced toward others, and in particular toward Ruth and Naomi, it seems to me that what you have is a man whose very nature is love, and therefore the sacrifice that he makes, the corner of his fields and whatever, he goes beyond the law. He goes beyond the bare requirements. He doesn't, you know, when the law says you got to do the corner of your fields and some, some stingy person has got their, micro, their, their microscopic measuring tools to leave the corners as skinny as they can. Boaz says to his servants, not only let her glean in the corners and in the fields, drop some. It's not enough. Drop some. And if that isn't enough, he gives her some more to take home that's already been threshed and whatever. Love fulfills the law. Jesus commands us to love in, in many places. John 15, 12 being one of those. First John talks about a new commandment, and yet he says it's not really new at all. It's old. Love. Oh, I wanted to tell you too. The more I, I was looking at love, one of the, one of the Old Testament books that is heaviest on love would be what book? Well, there's lots of them, but Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. And it's very clear in Deuteronomy that you are to set your heart on God. You are to set your heart to love Him and then to keep His commandments. So that the instructions that are given in Deuteronomy are really heart-centered commandments in the way we ought to view and orient ourselves toward God. And if we have that kind of love, then we'll be like the psalmist in Psalm 119 that says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. Have you ever heard anybody say that in recent days? Oh, I just love Leviticus. Now, Tom Wright does. I know that. But, but most people avoid the Old Testament law, and yet it is a manifestation of God's love for us, and it ought to provoke and stimulate our love for Him so that His commandments become desirable to us because of the God we love who has made those commands. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love. That's what sound doctrine ought to produce. Now, it ought to produce other things, but the goal of Paul's instruction was love. Teaching is not opposed to love. It is aimed at creating love. And as I said last week, when we decline in our love, we increase in our predisposition toward error. I think that's that's pretty clear in Scripture and in life. Uh, 
in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, love is greater than faith and hope. You could say love is the greatest. Remember, he says in that last verse, uh, these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now, if you're saying love is greater than faith and hope, that's saying a lot. Now, we gotta, we gotta qualify that. The, the point is that faith and hope don't have to endure because they're fulfilled in heaven. Love's gonna go on forever. And so the test here is longevity and, and, uh, love is eternal. Love is the basis for sacrificial living. I think I'm going to come back to Ephesians next week because love is a key word in, in the book of Ephesians. But in chapter 5, he says, we are to walk in love. And then he goes and spells out what that is going to look like. That's the beginning of chapter 5. At the end of chapter 5, he's going to be talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And he's saying that if the husband has the same kind of love, that sacrificial love that Christ had for his church, then the husband is going to sacrifice himself for the uh, betterment of and the good of his wife. So love is the rule of life. And then 1 Corinthians 13, those first verses, uh, Without love, ministry is worthless. I was reading Alex uh, Strauch's book on love, and and I'm not going to do it to you. And he would, I know he would, but he would at that this moment in time, he would pull out a big pot and a spoon, and he would whack that thing, and people, you know, initially you'd smile and giggle and look at each other, but he just keeps doing it. And he talks about love and whatever. And pretty soon you're saying to yourself, shut that thing up. I am tired of hearing it. And it's now irritating. And, and that's what Paul is saying. Ministry, even the most profound forms of ministry and the exercise of gift, if they are missing love, they are not only useless, they are actually annoying and irritating to other people. And then I, I say the importance uh, to our Lord in our text. He uses the word fallen. Remember from where you have fallen. That's not a weak word. It says that when one has left their first love, they have fallen. And when you watch the way that word is used in the scriptures, that's a very serious thing. Serious enough that the solution is repentance. You are to remember from where you have fallen, and you are to repent. And the consequence for failing to act is to have your lampstand removed. So I think we can see in our text, our Lord Jesus takes the lack of love to be a most serious offense. Now again, uh, this is drawing from other scriptures, but I think it's absolutely important to ask ourselves, so how do we know when our love is lacking? How do we know when our love is is growing cold? When our when our relationship with God is becoming distant and our relationship to others as well. I think that there are indications all through scripture. I think the first thing that I mentioned last week is how did the love of the early church manifest itself? They 
they were eager to be together, were they not? I don't think anybody in Acts chapter 2 needed Hebrews 13. You know, don't forsake the assembly yourselves together. My back! They got together daily in the temple and house to house. And they broke bread. They couldn't get enough of each other. In terms of, of uh, their finances, they sold their property and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet so that their brothers in need could be ministered to. They, they proclaimed the gospel not in the sense of, oh my goodness, we've got the Great Commission, I guess we better do something about it. They proclaimed the gospel because they were so excited and so in love with our Lord that when they went out, you couldn't shut them up. They didn't dutifully witness, they just oozed it. And, and people came to faith because of that. In fact, they even oozed it, as you know, in, in uh, Acts uh, chapter uh, 13, for example, uh, and in chapter 11, they oozed it to people who the Jewish Christians thought shouldn't hear it. So they were getting all uptight because Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, uh, as we see in Acts 10 and Acts chapter 11. He gets called on the carpet and whatever. They took the gospel so that now the people in Antioch were coming to faith, Gentiles, and they're outrunning, as it were, the Jews and coming to faith. Many evidences in the book of Acts. If you want to see love in its early stages, look at the book of 1 Thessalonians where Paul is describing those earmarks of love that is characteristic of the church at Thessalonica. And then the evidence of first love in in Ephesus itself, the way in which the gospel spread rapidly, Uh, the way in which uh, the power of God was so great and so compelling, they burned their how-to books and put their dependence fully upon uh, the Lord Jesus. A witness and faith and love so powerful that the industry of that area was threatened because people stopped buying idols and started going for the real thing. Uh, Our first love and our worship. Thinking about that, you know... It was mentioned this morning during our time around the Lord's Supper, but how many times I was really pleased, I was really pleased at the songs that we sang because I was thinking about the relationship between love growing cold in marriage and love growing cold in our relationship to Christ. Lots of parallels. One of the questions would be, I'm glad Jeanette's in the nursery because I can confess like crazy, but... One of the questions is, how often do you say, I love you? How often do you say, I love you? A couple of our songs specifically were songs that conveyed love and devotion and desire toward our Lord. And and husbands, that's what we ought to be telling our wives. We said it a lot early on, did we not? Some of our wives can't even remember what the sound of it is. We ought to be saying, if we really love, we ought to be saying it. We ought to be expressing it. Our worship ought to be an expression of that. Sundays are a day that we set apart. It doesn't matter, in my opinion, it does not matter scripturally which day you choose. 
But if I read Isaiah chapter 58 correctly, it's saying that part of this Sabbath mentality is that we set aside our selfish daily interests for a time that we will devote ourselves to God. And so the question for us is, I don't know if there's a football game on this afternoon or not. Probably is. But but is our Sunday, are, are we trying to cram it all in on Sunday morning so we can get home and get to what, you know, the cowboy game or whatever it is that's going on? Is that our mindset? Or is our mindset one that says, you know what? I wish we could just keep going all day long. And in some parts of the world, my friend, they do. And they say, forget the roast. In fact, they don't put the roast in the oven. They know it's going to burn. And so they just saturate themselves with the opportunity to be in the presence of God and the people of God and uh, and uh, exude their love. First love and obedience to his commands. Jesus makes it clear and, and the scriptures make it clear that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. Deuteronomy makes it clear. We need to love him and therefore we will keep his commandments. Are his commandments our duty or are they our delight? Are his commandments the thing that our heart tells us we really want to do? Or is, are his commandments something that our guilty conscience just kind of forces us to do? That's a, that's a barometer, an indicator, I think, of perhaps the intensity of our love. Our passion for Christ and for his preeminence. When you look, for instance, at the book of Colossians and you see our Lord and how it's really all about him. When you look at 1 Corinthians and you see the false teachers where the focus begins to shift away from Christ, away from the cross, and to these particular popular figures who are gathering a following. And Paul says, you know, I'm just Johnny One Note. All I do is preach Christ and Christ crucified. That's because Christ was preeminent. And you don't ever move on and say, well, let's, let's move on from that. That was good stuff, but now we're going to move here. No, you're not. If you love him, he is the focus. And he is the one who is preeminent in your heart and in your mind. I love in our service. Are we serving because we love him and we love others? Or are we doing it because it's what we should be doing? Our love and our giving. Well, when you look at the giving of the early church, their pockets just got emptied. Something to think about. Our love and our conversation, our witness. What are we talking about? This one, this one really is, is a guilt provoker with me because I, I've got a lot of things I like to talk about. Some of them, too many of them, more than Jesus. You know, computers, cars, man, I can get off down those bunny trails fast as anybody. What are we talking about? The early church was so taken with Christ. You talk about what you love. That's my point. First love in scriptures. Well, I'm just, Picking up the drum from Tom, right, am I not? If we love him, then we will love his love letter to us. It is his love that is manifest through his word, and we ought to be there eagerly 
uh, seeking it out. Years ago, I, I found a letter, I found an article in the Dallas News about a, a woman whose husband was a POW, and she had received a letter from her husband. And she was going through that letter, and she was saying, he says this, what he really means is that. And she was, she was, in a sense, exegeting that letter, squeezing every ounce of her husband's love and life into her life because she cared about him and his letter to her was important. First love in our prayers. How eager are we to pray? How long do we pray? Now, I don't, I don't believe in stopwatch prayers and I don't believe in gang prayers in the sense that God hears if they're bunched by a lot of people. The faithful, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So I don't think God needs to be voted and, and, and reply to prayers like an applause meter. But I do think that we need to ask ourselves, is prayer the thing that we do first or last? <laughs> Somebody says, you know, well, he's, uh, he's, he's dying. He hasn't got long and there's, and there's, uh, nothing left we can do but pray. And somebody says, so it's come to that. You know, what that means is, prayer, you know, it's, it's, it's the last thing we do rather than the first. How much of our prayers are praise and adoration? How much of our prayers are praise and adoration as compared to petition? I don't think I want to be examined on that, so I'll quickly move on. What's the solution to lost love? Remembering. Now, I'm not going to try to go through the, the, the repent and repeat thing uh, very much. I'm, I've got another week left, so I've got time to burn here. But it's interesting to me that when it says, remember from where you have fallen, that's a tense that's talking about something that has happened in the past, and now the, the effects are abiding. And the call to repent is again calling for an act in time. But the call to remember, and not one of the translations, reflects a present imperative. My, my sense in reading it is that we ought to keep on remembering. Now, there is a sense in which we need to go back and think about first love and, and what characterized those things, those first deeds, as a kind of benchmark. But it seems to me... That one of the problems with love is forgetting. It's forgetting. It's just letting things slip through your mental fingers. And, and that's what put me on a search to look up the word, and you can do it in your concordance. Look up the word forget, remember, and remind. And what you will see countless times in Deuteronomy and throughout all of the Old Testament is what happens to people is over time they forget. And so God says to the Israelites, you're going to forget what happened at the Exodus. You're going to forget those hard times that you had under Pharaoh and all of that oppression. You're going to forget, believe it or not, you're going to forget the way the sea parted and the way you passed through, and then the way that the sea closed up and drowned an entire army of the mightiest nation on earth. You're going to forget that. And you're going to get into the promised land, and you're going to be living in houses that other people built. You're going to be harvesting crops that other people planted. And you're going to say to yourself, 
boy, God just thinks I am so special and he is blessing me because I am so great. And God says, it isn't because you're so numerous and it isn't because you're so hot. It's because God has made a commitment to bless his people whom he has chosen. And so all through the Old Testament, there are the warnings about forgetting the goodness of God. And the great danger comes, in my opinion, when the second generation who has not experienced that mighty work of God in the first generation, that second generation is now one generation removed. And unless we are doing as parents our job and as Christians in church, conveying those things to the next generation, they're going to get cold. And I think it's not far from what was happening at Ephesus as well. Therefore, I see that this thing about remember is really a key thing. It's not just call this to mind and then act on it, but it's really this whole state. And I was thinking about that during our worship time because there's there's a sense in which As Paul says in Philippians, we need to forget the things that are past and press on. There's another sense, and Paul says in Philippians, remember, whatever things are pure and so on, let your mind dwell on those things. One of the things that we need to do is to reflect on this past year on all of the indications of the love and the grace and the care and the sovereignty of our God. If we let this last year pass by without a reflection and a recollection of what God has done and how he has manifest himself, we're missing something. Because when you look at the Psalms, the psalmist in the midst of great calamity, and from what I read in Revelation, there are going to be Christians who are going to face a lot of that, in the midst of great calamity, part of the hope that we have for the future is based upon God's acts in the past. Is it not? Distant past, the exodus, whatever. But also in our past, when we see the hand of God in our lives. Okay, I'm going to leave repent other than to say this. Repent's a pretty general thing. I think it requires a change of mind and a change of action. But somebody's always going to say, well, what does repentance look like? And my answer is always, you'll know it when you see it. I think the problem with legalistic people is they want legalistic formulas. And I don't see that as being the point of this. That love and legalism are miles apart. But when we act out of love in our repentance, they'll know. They'll know. And I suspect we will too. Conclusion and application. Ephesus, I was thinking about this in light of of chapter 3 and the church at Sardis. Ephesus is actually on its way to being Sardis. Look at at what he says to the church in Sardis in in, uh, Revelation 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that is, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen the things which remain, which were about to die. I have not found your deeds to be completed in the sight of my God. Therefore, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. It seems to me that the next step after this lack of love that we see in Ephesus 
is arresting on your laurels. And, and now you're just riding on your reputation and you get dead. Because there just isn't anything, there's no gas in the tank. And that's where I see Sardis as being one step removed further down the line, further down the river, I guess you'd say. Second law of thermo, spiritual thermodynamics. Folks, water doesn't run uphill. It runs downhill. The world is not getting better and better. And, and things do not move toward improvement. They move toward decay. Look at our bodies if you don't believe that. It's all going downhill. And that's why the Christian life is swimming upstream. If you remain static in your Christian life, you're going down the river. Because you can't stay static. You have to press on. And so when I look at, at the exhortation in, and the commendation in the, uh, Paul's commendation to the Thessalonians, you know what he keeps saying? Your love, your hope, your faith are growing are growing. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, you are to pursue these things. By the way, the top achievement in all of that is love. And he says, if you are pursuing these things and growing in them, then your faith is is not a, a waste. Your efforts are not a waste. And so growth is absolutely essential. And it seems to me that one of the things that is true at Ephesus is They had it. They had it. But they've lost it because they haven't been growing. Wherever we are in our love, wherever we are in our knowledge of Scripture, wherever we are in our evangelism, we need to grow. And we never can be content. And that's why I think Paul is saying, forgetting the things that are past. He's forgetting the achievements, not the failures. That's easy. We all want to forget those. He's forgetting the achievements because he's pressing on for the goal of the high calling of our Lord Jesus. We live in a society that doesn't have much regard for the past. <laughs> we, we don't, our, our generation knows almost no church history. Our generation knows almost no biblical history. And I'm talking not about the outside world. I'm talking about the church. We are living in a day when history is scorned and when history is revised to make it whatever you want. And, and, and so we don't have great regard for the past, but it seems to me that we are called to remember. And therefore, the past is vitally important to the Christian, not just our past, but the past of God's working throughout his church and throughout time, singular or plural. Um, what I'm saying is this. When it comes to fixing problems in the church, you don't fix them collectively. You fix them singularly. No matter what the problem is, every single member of the body of Christ must do what our Lord is saying, and that is remember from where you've fallen, repent, and renew those deeds that you once did. Everyone must do that individually. It is not something elders can fix by decree. It's not something we can do by mass movement. Everybody needs to respond individually. It's true all kinds of ways. It's true in our nation in terms of our morality and whatever. We keep thinking somehow if we get a Congress in there that will pass the right laws, we fix it. It won't happen. Sure, we ought to have the right guys in Congress. Sure, we ought to fix a lot of crummy stuff. 
But until people's hearts and lives are changed individually, it's not going to change. It's not going to change our, our, our nation fundamentally. And our church will be changed when God works individually. Now, there's also Hebrews 10.24. We ought to consider how to stimulate others to love and good deeds. While love is our individual responsibility, stimulating others to love is our responsibility as a body and as individuals. Fuzzy logic. I'll stop with this. Fuzzy logic is where you tr- you find something out with a more vague set of parameters. If you want to study love, you can look up particular Greek or Hebrew words for love. You can look up the English word for love, but you won't find every text that deals with love because some passages won't use it. It's in the context. And so one of the ways in which a, a, a student of Scripture has to study is to study by fuzzy logic, and that is you have to go beyond just those particulars and deal more generally. I think that part of the reason why fuzzy logic is used here is because people's problems vary. In other words, I, I, I don't think anybody would dispute the fact that every single person sitting here or listening to me has a problem somehow with a lack of love. Would you not agree? Wouldn't we all have to admit that's true? I would hope so. And and if that's true, it also manifests itself in an infinite array of ways. And so there's no way in which I could possibly describe or 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 the scripture could possibly describe every particular way. So you leave it general so that the spirit of God can now work in terms of the specifics and the cure will be the same. You can't have every Christian doing exactly the same thing because not everybody has the same gift. Not everybody has the same set of givens and variables. It's going to take fuzzy logic. I said last, look at our windows. Loving God, loving my neighbor. That's our motto. That's our motto. There's nothing more important in that sense than love. And that's why it's such a critical problem at Ephesus and why it's such a critical problem in every church where Christ is named. Father, we ask that you would cause us to reflect on these things, to see the areas in which we have failed in our love, to repent and to renew those deeds which reflect our love not only for you but for others. To your glory we pray. Amen.